0: Uncovering the most amazing stories from the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing, tech and digital. This is the Wonderful People Podcast. Phil, what is your favorite event at the Olympics?
1: Oh Dan, you got me there, mate. Um let me have a thing. In terms of enjoying the events, it's it's gotta be the hundred meters. It's sort of like we had so many years of one person that was head and shoulders above everybody else. It was amazing. But actually now it's a level playing field and actually looking at who's in that race now, anybody, any one of maybe four or five people could win that. I think that's probably the most exciting, even though it's under 10 seconds.
0: Yes, how about you? True, yeah, I think, yeah, obviously the 100 metres of love, 200 metres of love. I love um, some of the swimming events as well, just seeing ridiculous how quick they can swim. Diving, I you know, I love I love watching a dive in mainly because I can do a belly flop from about you know a meter high. <laughs> and some of these guys do these crazy things at ten meters. Um I do so many, isn't there? There's just so many cool events. But yeah, you do sit down, don't you? For the hundred meters and the two hundred meters, they're like they're like the main ones. I I agree with you. Okay, so here's a question for you.
1: Yeah. What
0: event can you not get your head around? You know, when you watch it, you think, how on earth do they do that? Uh,
1: there are several of them, Dan. But I think, for me personally, because I've got absolutely no sense of direction. I mean, literally, as I if I get in the car going out of my door, turning left or right is a big decision. So I, think, <laughs> I think something like the javelin would. Anybody that was stood within a hundred meters of where I was launching that javelin from, they're, they're going to have to go hiding. <laughs> to just throwing something sharp in a general direction and hoping it will go straight, I think that would just kill me. So you, you it know, would also clear. kill several other people.
0: <laughs> clear the stadium. Phil's doing the javelin. You've heard it here first. If you're ever out uh, meeting with Phil or going out for drinks, never, ever give him a javelin. Um, <laughs> yeah, do you know what? You know what I can't get? What I think is amazing is that like, the dressage. When you see how the how the ride, the, the, the riders and the horse like just craft this routine and the horse is dancing and it's just amazing, absolutely incredible. I love a bit of that. And then yes. also, have you ever watched the synchronized swimming? It's the <laughs> yeah. most ridiculous thing in the world ever. It's brilliant.
1: It is. Uh but I think it's also the fact that this year it's in Tokyo, and you've got to get your horse over to Tokyo. Yes. So you know, there's the amount of preparation that goes into getting a human in the right frame of mind for an eight-hour time difference, but when you've also got to factor in the horse as well, that takes some doing. So That's a very good uh, point. Yeah,
0: incredible good point. Right, final question for you, and this is one. This is one I've always wanted to ask you because you know you you're, you're a bit of Olympian in your own rights. But if you were to be an Olympian, who would you be? Ah. Uh,
1: but well, you know the nice thing about the Olympics is there are certain countries that, for reasons of size or location, they're never, ever going to be able to win, say, the World Cup or the Champions League or any of those things. And there are individuals within those countries that I'll think that are worthy of winning a World Cup so i can think of one that and i've had the pleasure of meeting him many many years ago was georgie best right uh, playing for northern ireland is like the only player in that team that was like truly world class and he could never win something in the world of football but he could have won gold in the olympics because wow. it opens everything up. When you're actually playing in the Olympics, it's just a different vibe altogether. And you know, we've just seen the, the um watching the Americans have just gone out to Canada. That should never happen. You should never have the Americans at ladies' football going out to the Canadians. But the Olympics changes everything. So maybe Georgie best back in the day.
0: Georgie best back in the day at the Olympics. There we go. That's a great answer. Love that. Love that. So, so many amazing Olympians, isn't there, over the years? And I love, like you said, it's the stories where, some, you know, the people you didn't think were going to achieve, achieve something great. And I, that's what it's all about. Now, for those listening in right now thinking, why are Dan and Phil talking about the Olympics? It's not just because we love sport, but it's because today's guest... Um, Phil is going to introduce shortly, but he is a chief executive of Sport England, and so he's got some great insight and history with both the Olympics and the Paralympics. So, Phil, over to you to introduce today's guest.
1: Today's guest has been at the helm of some of the biggest business and sporting bodies in the UK. During his seven-year tenure at the British Paralympic Association, he transformed the profile and commercial success of the Paralympic movement and saw them record their best ever medal performances. We're delighted to welcome Mr. Tim Hollingsworth, OBE, to the Wonderful People podcast today. He's now heading up Sport England. He and his team are responsible for growing and developing grassroots sport and getting more people active across England. Today, we're going to explore the critical role that data and digital innovation is going to play in getting the country active post-pandemic. And we hope to get a little bit more insight into how a Fulham fanatic with a master's in drama ended up being awarded an OBE for contribution to sport. I give you Tim Hollingsworth. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. And if you know the
2: answer to that, I'd be delighted as well. <laughs> nice to see you, Dan, as well. Thank you for having me on.
0: Uh, it's brilliant to have you with us. And, and Tim, you know, let's let's get down to the main question as we start. If you were to be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why?
2: Okay, so you gave me notice of this one question and I've thought of little else for about 24 hours. Um, and I've decided to give you my my sort of uh, historical hero as the person I would like to spend time and with rather than all the un, unprintable answers that I might have given you. Um, Abraham Lincoln is my answer. Wow. Uh, because there are lots of ways you can think about leadership and want to be uh, understanding about uh, leadership. But I have two reasons for wanting to be stuck with him. One is when you read and understand the challenges that he faced to become president and how he overcame those and then worked with those who previously opposed him. And then, secondly, how he kept that sort of sense of the value of what he believed in all the way through the struggle of the Civil War and, you know, the, um, the Emancipation Proclamation and all the things that he was determined to achieve and how he went about it, the Gettysburg Address, the vision that he was able to provide people for what genuinely citizenship was all of that really fascinates me particularly the sort of team of rivals that he built which is a whole a brilliant book about him if you ever read it uh, but also be a chance to say so all those wonderful quotes that I use of yours—did you actually say them? That would be, um, you know, uh, you know, that would be the question I'd really like to ask him. Because I do frequently quote Abraham Lincoln on the basis that he he often sums up for me from anything from, you know, if I'm talking to, you know, school kids or anything like that, the, the phrase he said, which you know, whatever you are, be a good one. I still think that's the best way to live your life. I'm pretty
0: sure he did say that. Brilliant. I well, want to be in that. Good. I want to be in that lift now. I kind of got my yeah. head there. I went there. I went there into the lift. That was brilliant.
1: It's really interesting, Tim, because um, I, I think you are number 26 in the podcast series, and so no, nobody asked that question There's asked for the same person to be in the lift with them. Well, there,
2: there's so many you can choose from, but I just thought of all the people that I find fascinating and who I sort of think of as being great contributors to, to the world around us now, I think he was. Um, and, of course, you know, Catching before before the the play sort of thing.
1: So, Tim, you hold honorary degrees from both Bath and Exeter and have a master's degree in drama. I understand that your initial career path was set for the world of theatre. Tell us a little bit about your early years and passions.
2: Yeah, it was very noticeable when you said, so he's ended up, you know, working in sport. Yeah, I mean, I was always... uh, There's always been uh, uh, three things in my life that I found really interesting public policy, as in, you know, government and the way it works, Um, sport uh, in all its forms, and I'm sure we'll come on to that. But actually what I was into and doing as a young person was was theatre and drama and performance and writing. And it was absolutely my sort of teenage passion. So although I played sport throughout my teenage years, as I sort of got to that critical mass point where you realise you're actually not as good as your contemporaries um i realized that i i got uh, i got a lot of um i got an awful lot from starting to do theater at school i was very lucky to have a really brilliant teacher who taught me an awful lot had been a former performer uh, and my my ambition was to go to drama school actually and in the end i thought that um very wisely that going to university which i did went to exeter to do an english and drama de- degree and then go on and i I enjoyed that so much and couldn't think of anything else to do and um i was offered the opportunity to do a a master's which um i look back on now as you know in all kinds of ways but at the time i felt it was quite defining i thought that was where my interests and my my passions were but also i loved it i was i was genuinely somebody who enjoyed performance i enjoyed thinking about communication i enjoyed thinking about the language but most of all I um I undoubtedly liked all the applause, Phil. I'm sure I did, you know. I'm sure it was great. But no, there was something about that time of my life when it, it it created my connection, it created my my friendships, it created my confidence. You know, it was a really important pursuit. And I'm very glad that I picked it up, but it wasn't something actually pretty quickly I realized that whether I had the talent, whether I had this the thin thickness of skin, whether I had the relentless drive to do it that actually when it came to the bigger wider world I started to look elsewhere as to what I could do that would be equally interesting and motivating. I spent a, a bit of time probably looking back and thinking wish I'd gone for it but actually I don't do that anymore I think I've been incredibly lucky and incredibly fortunate in what I've ended up doing.
1: It's, uh, I heard you in an interview once saying that having a degree in drama was as useful as having a criminal record.
2: <laughs> <Yes. It came laughs> to Getting a job yeah no absolutely.
1: Joking aside, it seems it was actually the catalyst for your chosen career path in PR and comms. And how did you end up with a job at the CBI and then UK sport?
2: So I'm massively passionate now about the sort of vocational opportunities that you can be provided, the skill sets that can be provided by uh, degrees like English and, and drama. And I look back on that and think it was one of the best groundings I could have had for roles and careers That needed you to think about um, people, needed you to think about communication, needed you to think about language, needed you to think about interpretation, needed you to think about uh, um, uh, the credibility and authenticity and all those things. I think I learned an awful lot about that in terms of uh, performance. And I also think innately the confidence where, you know, a lot of leadership roles that I'm in now, but all through my career in in public Relations. It was about the confidence to get up and speak, whether that was in front of an audience or whether that was in front of a journalist or whether it was, you know, internally in an organisation. So there was a sort of segue for me that happened when I was at 25 years old, living at home. I'd done a bit of acting, but I wasn't really getting anywhere. And at that era, pre-internet, everyone used to buy The Guardian on a Monday morning for the jobs section, the, the the media and communications jobs. On a Monday morning, The Guardian... And I found a job in public relations out of that, which I actually got, which is in a trade association. And from that, I realised that actually that overlap with public policy and the way that decisions got made and how government works. And, you know, the way that organisations and trade associations try to represent and lobby, I found very interesting and enjoyed. Even at that level, it was in the glazing industry, dealing with the journalists and finding out about how to communicate with them. And I started a career path, undoubtedly, and that got me. Uh, the chance after about a couple of years to apply for a job in the press office at the Confederation of British Industry. And, you know, I found my role there. So I enjoyed that role immensely. I became head of media in the in the 90s. It was a really febrile political time. It was the end of the major government. It was new labour and, you know, the, the wooing of business and the, the CBI felt like it had quite an important consequential role. Um, and I was in the middle of it doing the media relations at national level, speaking all the time to the journalists, engaging with politicians, finding my way through that landscape, enjoying the public policy element, enjoying the argument, particularly then about Europe, ironically, and, uh, you know, finding my, finding my feet, I think, as somebody who, who understood that the representation of organizations and the way in which, um, you you build reputation and that you build your credibility and the way that you argue and and get an influence and engage. I found that the skills I'd learned trying to act aligned with my interest in in the policy and the way that it worked meant that I really pursued it quite avidly and I had a six year career at the CBI, um, which enabled me to to pick up an awful lot of understanding of the world I'm in now in terms of government. And then I went quickly, I went to Granada to to do a job there as head of internal communications and corporate communications and learned a bit about the corporate world there and, you know, in the TV context at the time of great change in Granada as well and the introduction of digital television. God, that dates me. And then I was uh, four or five years in a consultancy as a director, which enabled me to uh, actually learn about the business of doing uh, the job. But uh, after four or five years of consultancy, with quite a lot, and I don't mean to speak ill of PR for, of, of of IT, but our company had quite a lot of IT clients, and I wasn't getting up in the morning fascinated by the subject. In all honesty, and I realised that what I really wanted was I wanted to go in-house, and I wanted to be working in an environment where I was passionate about the topic, and the subject matter, and and the and the product, if you like, rather more than than just the the, the work at hand. And that was where I started looking around again. And I was very, very fortunate that an inspirational lady called Baroness Sue Campbell decided that uh, in her reform of UK sport in 2004, it needed a director of policy and communications, which it had never had before. And she was determined to find somebody from outside the normal sporting world at that point. And that was again, a job I saw in a newspaper and I applied. And I think I probably gave the best performance of my life in that interview, <laughs> trying to sound that I could fit into the sporting world. I've, you know, i had been following all through that period, um, not just, you know, football and football clubs, but, you know, the Olympic movement. And, you know, I knew a fair bit about what was going on as a fan. And so that's my intro. It was very much in the context of a professional career taking me to sport rather than growing up through sport and the fortune that I had. That Sue and UK Sport at that time wanted something fresh and different, and were prepared to take a punt on somebody who had not had the moment of interaction with uh, oh. the sport before that.
0: Brilliant! That's really it's- interesting insight into kind of from university into one career, you know, segueing and then moving into an industry. You know, utilizing yeah. your skills and your experience. It's brilliant.
2: And you know, yeah. I mean, it, it's whatever you are, be a good one. I mean, I just try to be as good as I could be right. in all the jobs that I did, you know, and, and and find that that opens up your progressional opportunities and your your uh, your roles. But I am very much someone who's now very conscious that I didn't have the sort of career path through the sporting infrastructure, so I kind of know what my job is, which is to create the space for those that do, and I've always right. worked on that basis.
0: Really interesting. And we've got to fast forward, as we said, because we've got a lot to cover here. But after almost seven years as COO of UK Sport, you were then offered the top job at the British Paralympic Association. And I think it was right before London 2012, which yes. was amazing. So, I mean, what appealed to you about you know UK Sport into the BPA? And did you ever imagine that you would do what you did there and be in that role for so long and achieve so much?
2: Uh, not until it came along, but uh, and I've only been chief operating officer at UK Sport for a year. When I joined, I'd, I'd been seven years at UK Sport. But i obviously got to know the Paralympic movement uh, and been through Beijing, you know, at UK Sport with our investment into para sport. And I think one of the few things I can say now, with the benefit of hindsight, is that when that job became available in 2011, I kind of I knew what the opportunity was. I wasn't I wasn't someone who was still. Uh, for whom the the Paralympic movement was largely invisible. I had some context. Um, But I also thought that there was a tremendous verve behind what London were planning for the Paralympics. And I was desperately keen to see that come to fruition. And I knew Tim Reddish, who was the chair then of the BPA, a little bit, but not much. Uh, But I also thought that the direction of travel that he wanted it to go in as well was really important. So I went into that job knowing that I had to impress in terms of my ability to be the chief executive, but crystal clear about why I wanted it. I knew why I wanted it hugely, which is I thought this movement is amazing and fantastic and transformational, and it had the greatest moment in a year's time. And I think the the positive for for the BPA was that I was a known quantity. It was a big risk with a year to go to change CEOs, Right. And, you know, but I knew the sports, I knew the chief execs of the sports and, the, you know, I knew, I knew, I knew the people in LOCOG. It wasn't like I was going to come in and say, you know, what does, what does LOCOG stand for? I knew, I knew, I knew the environment. So there was something that I could bring to it. But yeah, I did know, or at least I felt that with the, there was a cusp of something that I wanted to be part of.
0: Yeah, interesting. But I mean, having said that, you still have to capitalise on it and and deliver it, right? And I think, you know, in just reading here, you know, the UK became just, you know, a a global leading Paralympic nation under your leadership, winning 280 medals. Is that correct? Across four games. Um, I mean, there's a a big strategy there and we can't go into it now. But what were some of the highlights and what were some of the things that helped to raise the profile of, of the movement worldwide? Yeah,
2: 280, 100 of those were gold, by the way, just saying. Uh, um, uh, Well, there's two things I would say about what I was able to do there. One was to absolutely, definitionally realise that I was not from the world of sport. I did not sound that credible in a tracksuit and I wouldn't be good. So one of the big things I did in 2012, which was the easiest decision I had to make, but was quite a change, was to not be the chef de mission, for example, who is the the sort of lead role for the team at the games. Because I knew that that was a performance orientated role. Uh, that rather my job was to create the space for that to happen as much as possible, partly to do with resource, partly to do with, um, you know, making sure that we had the best uh, people engaged, absolutely being athlete-centred in our approach to the Games and our preparation for it and, you know, the working with the sports and with UK sport to make the environment as good as possible, but then to trust in others who actually knew that environment really, really well. And I think one of the reasons for our medal success in that period is that we had phenomenal athletes unquestionably and a a much greater investment in power sport, but we also had leadership in the team who completely understood it, not least Penny Briscoe, who's the chef de mission, long-term chef de mission through the games to now Tokyo um, in, uh, in a few weeks time. And giving Penny and her team the space without ever really feeling that my job was to know better, but my job was to know what, you know, what was needed? What was required? How do we, And then how do, how can I make that work? And at the same time, do that in a way that drove my other abiding passion around the Games time, which is it was the ultimate showcase for a movement that's actually societal, that actually teaches us something about ourselves and actually can transform perceptions in a way that I, th- I think few other things can. And I think that was where I put my heart and soul, was that belief that the Paralympic movement actually is more than the Games. It's actually... It's, it's, it's a societal force and right. it needs to have that force. And you can only do that partly through the visibility and the credibility of the team, but also having a very clear message about not only what medals can mean in terms of the individual athletes, but what they can show the wider world about what's possible.
0: Right.
1: If you were in the shoes of your successor at the BPA, Mike Sharrocks, <laughs> what would be keeping you awake at night in the lead up to Tokyo?
2: everything I, i'm really very i apologize to mike on a regular basis um that he's had to inherit what is the hardest toughest environment possible for going into a games i mean we thought it was bad in brazil because there was the zika virus if you remember that little thing yeah, yeah. um uh actually it became quite a complex and difficult environment because uh first of all uh the russians were banned if you remember for doping and that was a yeah. very huge thing for the movement and then Uh, the Brazilian government worked out at some stage that couldn't pay for it and wouldn't wouldn't prepare to put it on. So there are all kinds of risks to that. But no, Mike Mike and the team and Penny are are dealing with daily, I think, the most changing environment and world. It's a very complex environment anyway, preparing for Paralympic Games. The overlay of the sort of health and well-being of the athletes is always paramount. To be doing that in such an uncertain environment, to be doing it, you know, several thousand miles from home, to be doing it in an environment where you don't know whether or not there's going to be even the certainty of the Games even this far out, and still to be preparing all the things that we know make a difference, and to make sure that everything is in place for the athletes and the kit that they require, and also to make sure that everything else in terms of the commercial and the, you know, the media and everything is in place. That's that's Herculean. So, I, I think Mike's Mike looks okay actually, but I, I'm <laughs> sure I'm sure he's kind of thinking. I hope it's not always going to be like this going into a games. But they are a wonderful team. Uh, there's some great people at the BPA, and there's some great people in the movement but I know how difficult and challenging it is. It's challenging at the best of times to be world-class in delivering parasport, but Tokyo's a different uh, a different wow. kettle of fish, as our Olympic colleagues are finding now. That's yeah, every day
1: when you read the papers, yeah. there's another yeah. story, isn't there, whether it all actually carry on. So, yeah. fingers crossed. Mm.
0: Talking about Tokyo, I see that Channel 4 have got the uh, amazing superhumans campaign yes. you know, up and running again. And I do believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was, in fact when this campaign first launched in 2012 that the Paralympics sold out for the first time ever we're, yeah we're amazing and I and just want to I want to kind of link that into your sort of role and part of your culture in sport England so how much emphasis are you looking to put on sort of commercial partnerships to be able to deliver impacting campaigns that help you to achieve your goal to get more people especially children active how, how does that look
2: yeah, I mean, I think I think everyone, by the way, should take a moment to watch the new ad from Channel 4 because I don't quite know how they've done it, but they've managed to make something that builds again on the Rio ad, uh, which in itself was, I think, one of the greatest three minutes of film uh, ever made. And then the London ad, which everyone remembers, which was this enormously impactful burst of energy that sort of introduced the superhumans and, you know, all wow. the thank you for the warm-up and all the way that they played with uh, traditional marketing. I think we owe, as a movement... Uh, the the Paralympic movement owes Channel 4 and other commercial sponsors who came in hard, like Sainsbury's and BP and BT, a huge debt, actually, for how they've helped to transform perceptions. But I also think that what we did was provide them with a very clear basis for doing so, which is that it was not a sort of corporate social responsibility play. It was not some sort of... um, you know, sort of secondary consideration. It became a primary value for the corporate company or for for the broadcaster to be associated with that that transformational agenda that I think the Paralympics has, to be able to Mm -hmm. show difference. Look at the way it's transformed Channel 4. Well, no, look at the way Channel 4 has helped to transform broader broadcasting now you know, and the way that um, disabled people are involved behind the camera and in front of the camera and, you know, the way that they've driven programming that would have been previously seen to be possibly, you know, not not common or acceptable on our screens. It's been really transformational yes. to the reputa- the image of um, of disabled people, for one of a better way of putting it, but more the opportunity for disabled people. And, you know, the way Sainsbury's has consistently backed the Paralympic movement and actually, you know, shown to its customers that it actually has that that value base i think i think there's an awful lot to learn one of the prime things we've got now with sport england slightly different focus because of course we're an arms length body of government um is that we use our, we can use commercial partnership or we can use campaigning and advocacy really powerfully right and i think that that's going to be one of the big shifts now strategically for us we've had four or five years of the demonstrable impact of a campaign this girl can which was introduced you know, by my predecessors in in about twenty sixteen.
1: Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share, and leave us a review.
2: And shown how you can genuinely create a, a a change to the perception of what's possible in terms of sport and activity for women and girls by addressing the issues on their terms, and the and the power of this girl can is that it it patently does that. And I think we will become a much more campaigning-led organisation, therefore, for what we can do. Uh, We've developed another campaign for groups of people with long-term health conditions. We are undefeatable, which is much more targeted, but I think equally effective in getting that messages across. And during the pandemic, we had a general catch-all campaign of Join the Movement, where we tried to create create awareness for people of what the opportunity was to be active, even, even during restrictions and the lockdown. So I think we've learned, I've learned an awful lot about the power of, of, that, of the media campaigning that you can do, but also we, we're looking much more at where commercial partnerships can make a difference. We've got a small one at the moment, which is actually having quite a big impact. We've partnered with Unilever and the Sure brand to basically, again, engage women and girls uh, in, in a way that's very mutually involving for them and that this girl can uh, amb- um, ambition so definitely you can see it as part of our future. What we don't need to do in the same way, I don't want to start cannibalizing the potential commercial revenue to sport when actually Sport England's role is as a funder and we have public money, lottery money uh, to distribute. So what we're not looking to do is commercialize our properties for gain. We need to commercialize partnerships for ambition and for amplification of messaging.
0: Right, excellent. Just kind of fast forward into where we find ourselves coming through the pandemic and consumer needs and customer needs becoming online overnight and that's become a you know a, a real focus now. Where would you say the sports sector is on that online journey in terms of meeting customer needs? Would you say it's fallen behind? Are we playing catch up? You know, it's a it's a big question. But you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think I think
2: I think there are two or three bits to that answer because it would be wrong to say that you know some bits of sport are sort of market leading, right? So you look at esports, for example, right. and the way that that is essentially an online-based uh, idea. And um, I've got two teenage sons. You know, I'm not just talking about the actual game they play. It's the it's the way they're engaged in all the now the social platforms and the influencers and all the people that they listen to. It's a community that is absolutely driven by online and, and digital interaction. Um, and you know we have to accept that that's part of our wider landscape that's showing the way to how people engage digitally can have uh, impact. You can also look at some i mean even even looking at uh you know tomorrow and and some of the TV coverage of of the hundred and the way that skies introduced avatars of the players. And they're thinking about how to do that more visually, or you can look at the brilliant online apps that are there now for Wimbledon or for the open or for some of the tournament play that's going on. So it's not wrong. To, it's, it's, it's wrong to say sport is an analog industry. Cause it's clearly not, but I think too much of it still is in a digital world. I think too much of what we think of as sport and particularly our, my focus now, which is, the community engagement in sport and the way that we have it at grassroots, it's still fundamentally not there. And there is challenge there in terms of, we are very used to in many parts of our lives, starting with a digital solution to the question of where can I? And I think we're not really there in terms of sport. It's much easier to book a hotel or to book a a flight if there is one, um, or to or to you know definitely to order a takeaway, or you know than it is to go and find a squash court or a badminton court or book a tennis court. It's changing, but that whole sense of the opening up of the data and the provision of genuine digital solution and innovation, I think, is a, is a game of catch up in large parts.
1: A little quickie questions here for you. So, um, <laughs> what's your favourite national anthem and your worst? Well,
2: wow. No, I, I've heard a lot. I mean, obviously, I heard the British National Anthem a lot at the Paralympic Games, just saying. Yeah, just saying. Um, my favourite... my fa- I have a top three, uh, and probably the Russian Nixit. So the, the Russian National Anthem I heard sung in the Sochi Stadium at the opening ceremony in 2014 by a visually impaired male voice, voice choir of nearly a, a 200 from the army. That was one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard, and the Russian National Anthem I find very... Stirring. Then you've got to throw in the Italian, which we all loved during the Euros, because it's just magnificent and um, uh. operatic. And the Marseillaise is undoubtedly a triumphant um, national anthem. So, um, and I'm not, I won't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. The worst is probably the Chinese, actually, because it's very boring and you hear it a huge amount when you go to a games so, because they win a lot of medals. So I'd probably... Well, this, this podcast and, is
1: not going to go down well in China, is it? No, no. <laughs> I definitely...
2: I, I honestly don't see how anyone could not... The only other thing I would say about the Brazilian national anthem very quickly in Rio, when you're in a Brazilian stadium and the a Brazilian gold medalist, the brilliant thing about the Brazilian national anthem is that the first verse is orchestral and they only come in on the second verse. So the first right. time you hear it, you think, why isn't anyone singing? And You know, because you've just got this playing out, this music. And then suddenly, for the second verse, this huge sort of, uh, you know, a mass of people started singing at the top of their voices. It's one of the most hair-on-neck moments I think I've ever had at a sports stadium. So oh, I might oh, chuck wow. the Brazilian one in quite high as well.
1: So while we're on Rio, then, what, what were your best moments in Rio? Wow.
2: I uh, I probably would say that I'm going to be really boring and say the fact that for two weeks everything worked for us is the best moment for me because I'm sitting there every day, partly, you know, obviously engaged in the day-to-day activity, but always with an eye to the fact that I'm kind of trying to stay on top of the whole thing, whether it's our guest programme, whether it's the stuff in the village, whether it's our, you know, engagement with the IPC, whether it's our engagement uh, with the media, you know, and, and, and so on a daily basis, just seeing everything coming together after all the you know the challenge we'd had in the build-up that was undoubtedly my best moment was that feeling constantly that my team uh was 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 performing and therefore the team was able to perform brilliantly cool. um and then I guess I got a bit of a reputation for for medal chasing so I can't really pick out any um any particular medal necessarily I suppose other than people if they've seen the picture might remember it was a very special uh moment when two swimmers who I know quite well, Ellie Simmons and uh, um, Susie Rogers, both won gold on the same night. Ellie won, uh, I think it was the 400 metres, reasonably comfortable. Uh, Susie Rogers, who then subsequently worked for the BPA, uh, won, you know, by the fraction and has that amazing photograph, if you've ever seen it, where she turns around and she sees she's won and she's got the the face of an absolute um, disbelief. Um, But about an hour and a half later with my colleague, Phil Smith, I was in the Paralympic um, dining hall having dinner with Ellie and Susie while they were just sitting there having just having won their golds, you know, and that was probably the highlight for me, actually, to two athletes that I'd got to know quite well, who earlier that evening had won medals in the pool and were just having a a bit of a meal, you know, when they got back to the village Um, and having a chat about how
1: it
0: felt. Remember that picture. Your colleague,
1: Phil Smith, is a real gentleman, but he's always, he doesn't know it, so you can tell him, but he's always the first person to pay for Sports Punch every year. Yeah. Where that is like, it's almost within an hour of of an invitation, Phil Smith has sorted it. It's just incredible.
2: That sounds very very likely. Yes, good. I'm glad
1: to know, yeah. Um, Who do you look to as an industry or a sport or perhaps an organization for inspiration of what is possible and what opportunities you see that are being missed due to lack of digital innovation. Um, I'll
2: tell you an organization who I think we can all look to um is Parkrun, actually. Um, I've learned, and obviously we work now quite closely with Parkrun, but they're they're an organization that can teach us all a huge amount about. Uh, growing organically by giving people what they want, so you know it literally came out of a small group. And because it never put barriers in the way of people, it only created new new paths. Whether that was the volunteering that people wanted to do, whether it was the uh, the ability to find something more local than you know start new ones up. I think the global way that Parkrun has evolved should be a lesson to us all in terms of just how you how you genuine. There isn't a single person who is part of Parkrun, I should think, who doesn't feel like it works for them, because it's just there to just do in the way that makes sense for you. And I I love the fact that over the years, they've taken pride in the the time, the average time getting slower, because it means people are joining to run who weren't there to sort of try and storm the 5K around the park, you know, wherever they could. Um, I also think that the way that it creates community connection, which is one of the most important imperatives for me, Around the role of community and grassroots sport is the way we interact socially around at community and grassroots actually engages people and gives them a sense of identity and is part of this nation's fabric. And I think Park runs really good at that. The way it just allows people to enjoy that sense of community, whether it's the families that run together, whether it's the volunteers that run it in the park on a Saturday morning, and you and you just know that you just know what to expect when you go. And I think there's a, it's also a brilliant way of getting people more active. And it's been a tremendous boon to getting people uh, who were inactive previously in their lives doing something on a regular basis. And what we're working with Park Run to do partly now is to think about how they can how they can expand further still, particularly into communities that where perhaps the there isn't such an obvious place for the run to take place. So I would say we can all learn a bit from Park Run as an example of an organisation I look up to.
0: What kind of, what role do you see sort of digital? And we've spoken about innovation a little bit earlier on, but what role do you sort of see digital playing in the engagement and take up of sport in school age children?
2: Well, we've made it one of five sort of, in our new strategy, uh, which we published in January, We've kind of made that a topic that's one of five key catalysts, in our view, to change. So it's kind of less I know what the role is. I just simply know that it has to be part of our our future. Um, But I think whether it's for children and young people, it definitely has to be about new and innovative ways to engage. Uh, I can give one small example. Uh, Through the sort of overall umbrella of This Girl Can, we realise that there's a a dangerous cohort of drop-off of teenage girls, who actually just don't find that organised school sport works for them. And they find it wrong in all kinds of, you know, personal and, and, and sort of social ways. And then doesn't fit into their lives. And actually, our job is to be as willing to engage them and want them to be active as it is the keenest sports person. So actually, what we've done is we've partnered with an organisation to create something called Studio U, an online platform which basically equips Secondary school PE teachers to think about new and innovative ways to engage, particularly teenage girls in being active that can actually do it in a way that makes sense for them and provide the materials and the information that can help it happen in a way that can be fun and enjoyable. Because most of the job that we have in Sports England is to create safe, inclusive, enjoyable experiences, because the people who are most dedicated to sport will will go, you know, some one of my colleagues has a phrase They'd do it even if it was illegal. You know, they, you know, so they're, not, they're, they're very precious people, but they're not the people who actually have found that what we provide is not for them. It's those people that we need to be thinking more about, whether it's... And that social and demographic profile of inactivity is all about ways that people have previously felt excluded. So I think digital and data can play a real role in understanding that more and then finding ways to engage people in a way that makes sense for them that doesn't make them feel like they have to go and learn... Uh, you know, to play a sport in a team in an organized way straight away. Otherwise, they're not active. And Studio U is just one example in my view. So there's there's a huge way that we can do it, as well as we talked earlier about opening up of data and generally just finding platforms where you can find things
0: out much more simply and much more easily and what works for you. That's fantastic and really, really progressive. Now, you mentioned that you kind of you gave your answer in the context of your sort of 10-year strategy. If I'm correct, you launched and published that strategy off the back of uh, of the pandemic, which is obviously a huge impact on sport, especially community and grassroots sport. Now, I know you can't unpack it in too much detail, but what are some of those key goals or big things that you're looking at, both personally and professionally, over the next few years? Yeah, we did. We did it. We launched it
2: in January. It's called Uniting the Movement, uh, and there's a the, the clues, uh, big clues in the name. I think we're we're as Sport England now really focused on a nation that moves more. That's what our prime ambition is to to, to to help create, because I think when we move, we're we're stronger. We feel better with mental in our mental and physical well being. Uh, we're better about ourselves and our confidence. Uh, we have better social connection and cohesion. Um, and I think ultimately that provides an overall benefit to the nation. Um, And I think a happier, healthier nation will be one that moves more. So the the whole principle of uniting the movement is how do we corral all the resources at our collective disposal to ensure a nation that moves more and find ways to be physically active and play sport? And the principle that underlies it, though, the mission that underlies it, is what we spoke about just now, which is that actually for Sport England, consequentially, that means really addressing those stubborn inequalities that have existed uh, in the provision of sport and physical activity in this country for quite a long time. There is unescapable data that shows that there are parts of our community who are less well served and the levels of inactivity correlate often to many different characteristics or demographics, but mostly to social and economic circumstance. It's a fundamental fact that it is you know, it's largely your social economic circumstance will determine your activity levels. And so part of where we're focused on is to really understand that our mission should be to create a universal offer, but be really focused in on where we can make a difference in helping those who are less well-served uh, to engage. And then very quickly, that's really through the lens of five big issues. We understand that COVID is, is, pre- is prominent in that, that the recovery and the reinvention of our sector, you know the facilities base, the club base, uh, the infrastructure that supports sport has all been massively impacted by COVID. We can make sure we've done really a huge amount of work in the last eighteen months to, to help that stay together. But we can re- we can reinvent it positively on the back of COVID if we get it right and we work together. That um, definitely we need to see it through the lens of children and young people. That there is a physical literacy that's required in our young people that is not well served at the moment and that actually we can if we work more collaboratively around schools and out of schools on what matters and make it inclusive and fun for kids as well as you know my, my great thing is it's far far better that you know a nine-year-old comes away from a cricket training loving cricket than it is necessarily having the best forward defence. Because if they love cricket, they'll then want to learn the best forward defence. But if they haven't enjoyed learning the best forward defence, they probably will never want to go and play cricket again. So we've got to get that rebalance of, 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 of where you, what you teach at what stage and physical literacy, that fun and enjoyment and that sense of connection to sport at that age is crucial. And then we're very connected to public health. we want to make that point more directly. we want to make the point more about how it connects our communities and particularly the role of sports clubs in our communities and then and then very much thinking about the active environment, the places that we play in the the, the buildings, the the pitches, the sports centers, the pools, the gyms, the um you know the, the network across this country that needs support and needs
0: innovation to
2: to be ready for the next century.
0: Wow. That's that's a fantastic vision. Can I just say, my nine-year-old loves cricket, and he does. He's got no forward defence. It's all about hitting the ball and having fun. It really is.
2: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But eventually, it'll it'll matter, right? Once yeah. You've got to keep keep people engaged, and yeah. I think all of us that are middle-aged and love sport have come are, are the lucky ones because we've we've actually uh had it for us and made it work for us and, and as a result we're, we're very good ambassadors for it but we have collectively to understand that particularly generationally there was something about the sector that needed to change otherwise there would be a generation who'd be turned off it
1: right so which which sports were you most looking forward to attending though no. When the doors started to open. When the doors started to open. Well, um,
2: as somebody who's who's pretty rubbish at all of them, but a massive fan of of what sport is, and um, you know my enjoyment of it, um, I can't wait to go back to to the football. Um, I did have the pleasure and the privilege of attending some of England's games uh, during the Euros, which were very very special. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, chance to knit back to Craven Cottage before too long. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to. Um, but actually, um, from my own personal point of view, I like nothing more uh, than uh, watching cricket. I'm 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 a big cricket fan. I do still occasionally play cricket very badly. Um, so a day at the Test match with my friends the other week was a real pleasure. And um, I had shorts on and I was drinking beer. It was nothing to do with work. It was it was
0: like, <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a good day
1: out. Oh, yeah. uh, a little bit of personal pride for you because your nephew has just been signed by Newcastle United. Yes, a pro. You're you're reading Twitter very well there. Hey. Phil. Absolutely. Yes. Well you, you are you're quite prolific. You're actually in a positive way. I've never seen you write anything negative on there, but in a real positive way, you're letting people know what's going on and yeah. it's and that just in the middle of it there that all of a sudden your son now plays for Newcastle. Oh my Not my Sorry, nephew. not your son, your my nephew. nephew.
2: I think, I mean, Newcastle, I'm, on a, I'm not necessarily on a good curve. I'm not sure they want my son playing at the back. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, my my nephew, Lucas de Bol, has just uh, signed uh, full professional terms. He's been on their books since he was 12. So we've had the incredible journey through the academy with all those nerve-wracking moments of, um, you know, the, the various pass points that they have. I've learned a lot about the system. I've learned a lot about how the academies work. Um, he's a... I, uh, I keep saying to his mum, who's my sister, you know, somebody has to make it. You can't you can not not have all the professional footballers fail. You know, somebody has to make it. And he's very close now. He's playing for the under-23s. He played for them in a friendly um, on, uh, on the weekend. Uh, he's not quite made the first team squad yet. One of his friends has. But, um, yeah, it's very exciting. And it means that I sort of have a second team now as well. I have to sort yeah. of care Congratulations.
1: about it. Did,
2: yeah. uh, did your sister
1: marry a Geordie then?
2: No, uh, he's a Belgian-Brazilian, actually. So there's oh, a, no. a ruling heritage there. Um, yeah. But they live in the borders of Scotland. And, if, and the bit that, of the biography, when Lucas is very successful, that I will claim, is that he was a bit running out of road in the borders with nowhere really to play with any of, of any great um, uh, consequence, because it's, it's a rugby it's a rugby part of the world in Scotland. Yeah. And I, um, through hearing of you know, the story of Shearer and Beardsley and Waddle, I'd heard of Walls End Boys Club you know, in, in Newcastle. So I recommended that um, when he was about 11 or 12, he go for a a trial at Wall's End. They didn't live that far from Newcastle, just over the border. And um, he got in at Wall's End and within a year had been picked up by Newcastle. So uh, that's how
1: he's ended up there. Wonderful. Dan, you're going to round this up now.
0: We're on the final question already. I'm really enjoying this. Well, (laughs) you have to come into land now, um, unfortunately. But just kind of final question we ask all of our guests. As an agency, we're a a digital agency. It's all about making complex things wonderfully simple. What's one of life's complexities you would like to see made simpler?
2: I think that's a really good question. Um, And I'm tempted to say something really bland, like every time I have to change my password, I appear to be locked out of all my (laughs) different uh, devices for at least a day. So that was one. But you know, I was thinking about Twitter um, and Phil, you said about positivity. I I miss, I don't, you know, I miss the, the power that Twitter sometimes has to bring communities together. I find that divisive nature of it very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, and I, I just wish there was some way uh, that we could um, sort of have better harnessed what you might describe as the early days of that particular platform when it felt like it brought communities together in a very very positive way so I'm not sure you at at an agency can do that (laughs) but um I do think the power of it is is undiminished but it's unfortunately a power that's now pointed in 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 a different way so I if I could if I could wave a magic wand I would just basically say there was there was a joy in the way that Twitter told people about what was going on but brought people together rather than sort now I think just to create the division that it does.
0: Great answer.
1: Thank you very much for your time today. You've been absolutely amazing, Tim.
2: Thank you, Dan, both of you for, for having me on. A real pleasure.
0: What a great episode with Tim. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as, as Phil and I did. Absolutely brilliant. Now, however, this is where I need you to do something. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, share with all your friends, and watch this space for our next guests. To give you a sneak preview, we've got guests coming up from Lego, Co-op, the Design Business Association, and even Brighton & Hove Albion. So please remember, like, subscribe, and share, and have a great week, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast is brought to you by a Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at bewonderful.co.uk.